Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The report we make is that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be the president and the vice president. We did it. We did it, Joe. You're going to be the next president of the United States. (laughs) It's one of the great days in American history. To restore the soul and secure the future of America requires so much more than words. Hello, and welcome to Battle for the Soul of America, a three-part series from the New Statesman's World Review that examines the first year of Joe Biden's presidency. We will be judged, you and I, by how we resolve these cascading crises of our era. He promised a new era, a chance for America to heal, not only from the pandemic, but from four years of Donald Trump and the divisions he stoked. We will rise to the occasion is the question. Will we master this rare and difficult hour? Will we meet our obligations and pass along a new and better world to our children? I believe we must. I'm sure you do as well. I believe we will. I'm your host, Emily Tampkin. And with a range of expert guests, we examine whether three pillars of Biden's campaign promises, foreign policy, immigration, and voting rights have held up. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. In our first episode, we'll be looking at a fundamental cornerstone of Biden's presidency, foreign policy, one year on. I speak today as president of the United States at the very start of my administration, and I'm sending a clear message to the world. America is back. The transatlantic alliance is back. Biden, with his decades of experience on foreign affairs, claimed that America is back after four years of a Trump administration that flaunted its foreign policy through an America first lens. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Has America made a comeback as the preeminent global leader? Or is it still a nation governed by self-interest and geopolitical convenience? EU-US relations were poor during the Trump era, and despite Biden's assurances, there have been strains on the transatlantic relationship. I was not going to extend this forever war. And I was not extending a forever exit 
with many European officials feeling betrayed by America's chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. The UK, US, and Australia announced a historic security pact in the Indo-Pacific in what is seen as an effort to counter what they view as Beijing's aggression. Washington has also sought closer ties with India. I think it's it's not a secret that the relationship between the United States and China is uh, arguably the most important relationship uh, that we have uh, in the world going, going forward. And increasingly, uh, that relationship uh, has some adversarial aspects to it. A major potential flashpoint is the Biden administration's pledge to defend the self-ruled island of Taiwan. So, how far have Biden's foreign policy slogans managed to heal the diplomatic damage of the Trump era? And at what cost? I am delighted to be joined for this discussion by Tanvi Madan. She is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and author of Fateful Triangle, How China Shaped U.S.-India Relations During the Cold War. And Benjamin Haddad, he is senior director of the Europe Center at the Atlantic Council and author of the book Paradise Lost, which is on U.S.-European relations. So, Ben, I wanted to start with you because Biden came into office and said, America is back. And I think there was this real sense of relief um, particularly in European strategic circles, that, that that meant that we could get the United States-European relationships back on track. But one gets the sense that the last year has been rockier than that introduction might have suggested. What do you make of the first year of Biden's bringing America back? Hi, Emily. It's great to be here. I, I agree with your assessment. It has been rockier than expected. It's been disappointing uh, for some. Uh, first, I mean, there were a lot of good news. And of course, we've seen a huge change of tone and rhetoric in the relation between the United States and Europe. Uh, the administration does not call the EU a foe, wants to work with the EU on global challenges from climate change to, of course, uh, the rise of China or COVID-19. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of the very early decisions such as uh, reintegrating WHO or uh, the Paris Climate Change Agreement were good news for Europeans. Right now, one of the leaders of the uh, European External Action Service is in Washington to meet with the State Department to talk about China. So you've seen, you know, this this dialogue and this conversation that's, that's back on track and that's uh, important. However, I think uh, we have seen of course, a few uh, episodes that were very spectacular, the withdrawal from Afghanistan that have left uh, allies, especially in, in Germany or in the UK, which has troops there reeling over the, the lack of consultation from Washington. And I think more generally, the lack of influence that they had over the timeline that the Biden administration chose. Of course, the AUKUS episode, which uh, was received as sort of a shell shock for policymakers in Paris. And we've seen the administration uh, working hard actually to patch up things with Paris and more generally with Europe since then. And under the radar, you know, still the continuation of some trade disagreements, this uh, COVID travel ban that was caught in bureaucratic inertia for months, although it was uh, finally lifted a couple weeks ago by the administration. Now, why is that? I think there's a few factors. I mean, of course, you have domestic factors, which is that the administration is first and foremost focused on recovery from COVID, both from, from the health standpoint and the vaccine rollout to uh, economic uh, recovery. Uh, I think President Biden's legacy uh, will probably more be defined by major domestic pieces of legislation. And of course, the uh, infrastructure plan, all the Build Back Better agenda that he's working on with uh, Congress. I think we have seen also some irritants that are lack, linked to the fact that uh, 
partisan reasons, a lot of really talented U.S. ambassadors still haven't been able to fill their positions in Europe and elsewhere. And that does play a role. I mean, you know, you think about AUKUS, if you had a U.S. ambassador in Paris, U.S. ambassador in NATO and Brussels, they're there to, to sense the temperature, to send back signals and say, well, maybe, you know, we should include the French here a bit more. They didn't see it coming, etc. So all these things matter. But I would argue that beyond these uh, conjectural elements, I think there's something much more structural that's happening in the transatlantic relationship uh, that started before President Trump, largely with the announcement of the pivot to Asia by President Obama that was accelerated by Trump. And I think we focus so much on the personality, the antics, the rhetoric, the scandals of the Trump administration, that sometimes that was a little bit the tree that hit the forest of something deeper that was going on in the United States, both domestically on the left and on the right, but also in the broader strategic direction that the U.S. was taking, which is that, of course, Europe is becoming a secondary theater of interest to the United States. And that's understandable when you look at the challenges that are coming from uh, the Indo-Pacific, that there's a growing opposition to military intervention, especially in the broader European neighborhood, resentment over this and opposition to this, both the progressive left, but also part of the nationalist right. And this is why... On an issue like Afghanistan, we have seen continuity between the Trump and the Biden administration. On an issue like Syria, we have seen continuity between the Obama and the Trump administration. These are theaters that, you know, when it comes to terrorism or refugees, have a more direct impact on the security of Europeans. I think there's a feeling now that from the U.S. that we just don't want to bail out Europeans anymore. You know, they could step up. They have to take on more responsibility. Talk about the issue of a a burden sharing when it comes to defense. President Obama ended his second term with a famous interview in The Atlantic where he called Europeans, the French in the UK, I think more precisely, pre-writers. This language, once again, that was amplified in a very aggressive way and I think in a very counterproductive way by the Trump administration. But there is a real issue here. Now, my last point on this will be that I don't think it's a reason to despair. I think on the contrary, to go back to your point on America is back, Let's use this as an opportunity to have a frank conversation among allies on what does the United States expect from Europeans? What do Europeans expect from the U.S.? Where do we expect each other to step up and take responsibility? Because one thing's for sure, this administration is transatlanticist at its core. It's filled with people who like Europe, who care about Europe, starting with the president, the, the secretary of state, the national security advisor. But that doesn't mean that they're there to defend U.S. interests and U.S. priorities. Uh, when Biden announced the Afghanistan withdrawal, you know, he was very explicit. He said, from now on, we will intervene to defend vital national interests in the United States. Uh, I think in his mind, that clearly covers Article 5 of NATO and, and collective defense on the European continent. But would that cover a crisis in Bosnia tomorrow, a crisis in East Med, something happening in the Sahel, North Africa? You know, I think here, Europeans will have to step up and take responsibility. So we have a window of opportunity, I think, in the next three years. And I think the post-AUKUS momentum on the debate between European defense and NATO, we might talk about it a bit more, is an opportunity to, to reshape this and, and think about where, where America can support Europeans stepping up and investing more in their security. But it's true that America is back, I think, has created undue expectations. Uh, and it's time to move on a little bit from this to saying, OK, where are we back? What is our priority? Where do we want to focus? And where do we need allies to, to take responsibility. So there's a lot that I want to unpack there, but first I want to ask Hanvi because 
India and the Indo-Pacific more broadly is not an area where the United States seems disinterested. Um, and in fact, Biden has has in many ways continued, not in the same manner, but has continued Trump's policy of focusing on China and reaching out to India to deepen cooperation. How is that perceived by by Delhi? And separately, you know, there I think there was a sense in some corners that Modi had really uh, embraced Trump. Does the fact that it's a very different person who's making these overtures, has that mattered at all over the past year? Uh, thanks, Emeline. It's great to, to be on the show with both Ben and you. You know, I think in some ways, um, India's response is reflective of a few others, but not everybody in the Indo-Pacific, certainly not China, but even, even you know, some countries in Southeast Asia, etc. Um, but I think there have been some questions in Delhi, say this time last year, about what the Biden administration would do, um, particularly on China, because for them, a lot of the other things in the Biden administration's approach to, to India would perhaps flow from that. And that had been because what India had seen is that since about 2000, you've seen every American administration with very different presidents um, essentially have the theory of the case that you know, that India was going to be a geopolitical counterbalance, economic alternative, and democratic contrast to China. And therefore, it was in U.S. interest to support India's rise. And, uh, and, and therefore, they made kind of heavy investments in the India relationship. Um, and so for Delhi, I think it was interesting that they wanted to, uh, and somewhat predictable, that what they were looking at is what would Biden do uh, on China? And I think initially during the transition, and uh, not just India, but you had kind of some in Japan and Australia also kind of a little bit concerned when they saw some transition documents using, you know, Asia Pacific, um, when they saw even before the uh, transition, there was this very much this language about China that sounded to them in a Obama-esque mm-hmm. era of US-China relations, the cooperate, compete, balancing that. But I think, you know, what, what they found is um, almost from the start, uh, and perhaps, and, and you know, this is one can only speculate from the outside, whether that was administration officials going in and whether in their transition briefings or early briefings, seeing uh, what the situation really was with China, uh, what it was doing, uh, how much its capabilities, particularly military capabilities, had grown, um, that you did see a, a pretty competitive approach that was continuing. Uh, as you said, what the Trump administration had done, it, you know, with changes in approach, uh, the changes in approach that actually, you know, worked for India, because um, not only did the Biden administration say we want to reach out to allies, they included allies and partners. And I think the other thing they did is by actually keeping or, or trying to see at the beginning, at the very beginning, um, exploring this idea of elevating the quad which had met, uh, it was in October, um, for a ministerial, it was at the ministerial level, and Secretary Blinken met, uh, had a phone call with his ministerial colleagues pretty soon after, I think within a month of the administration taking office. And then within a month of that, um, there was a virtual leader summit. So that actually told you the fact that India agreed to a leader summit when it had earlier been reluctant about elevating it. I think it tells you that they wanted to see this U.S. approach continue and they wanted to convey that they were willing, they were willing partners in competing uh, with China. And I think, you know, bringing in the European angle there, you know, India is working, um, itself is working with European partners. 
But I, you know, when I think about the uh, differences that you saw in the U.S. focus on Europe versus the U.S. focus on on the Indo-Pacific, I do think, you know, what Ben says is, you know, the rise of China, what's happening in the region is making it a priority area. But I also think, you know, if you look at what Secretary Blinken did in that, you know, around the time he met with his ministerial colleagues, he also met with uh, what I, what you know, the Defense Department has called the Euro Quad. I, you know, I just said transatlantic quad, which was he met with the E3, uh, his E3 colleagues, uh, Britain, France, and Germany. I have a feeling that during the course of those meetings, this was just after the comprehensive agreement on investment, uh, unhappiness in the Biden administration about that, and the transition team. I have a sense that you know, in those early phases, it became quite clear that you know, Australia, Japan, and India were much more on the same page with the U.S. on China and willing to go further than kind of the E3 was. And I think that also helped make the administration double down on this approach they were taking to the Indo-Pacific, which for India worked because it meant a focus on the Indo-Pacific, which by keeping the Indo in it is partly recognizing India's importance. Uh, and I think, you know, it, it has led to over the last, you know, 10, 11 months, um, more kind of engagement with India from an American administration than we've ever seen a U.S. administration uh, spend. And I think it is because of this exactly how Ben talked about that their priority is kind of that Indo-Pacific theater and, and the competition with uh, with China. So I think because China's in, India's in the middle of this crisis with China, it wanted to see an administration that was, was ready to compete uh, with China to be committed to the Indo-Pacific and to therefore be committed to making investments in the India relationship. And I think so far they've seen all of that. And what that also does is when, from India's perspective, when you do have that utility, it also means that the U.S. is then willing to manage differences in a much more kind of consistent way, whether that's on trade, whether that's on Russia, whether that's on other issues uh, than it would have been otherwise. Ben, I want to get your thoughts on that and just sort of add in the question of does the focus on China, you know, does that necessarily mean that there's going to be tension in the transatlantic relationship because the EU and the U.S. are approaching it differently? And also when the U.S. says, of course, we want Europe involved in the Indo-Pacific do they mean it? Or would, would the U.S. rather have Europe stick to its own neighborhood? And like, listen, if you guys can just tend to your own garden, we can focus on China and the Indo-Pacific. And that would actually work better for the United States. Uh, look, Emily, I think the question you just asked is really the crux of the debate. And I wish we were asking you a little more explicitly, because I think what we're seeing right now in the conversation is you sort of have two camps implicitly. Uh, one basically saying, look, our priority is the Indo-Pacific. The truth is the military strategic value added of European allies is kind of limited there, even though the French, the Brits are there, they're conducting freedom of navigation operations in South China Sea, they're in the Strait of Taiwan, but you know, it's 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 not as as it doesn't really make that much of a difference to uh, uh to the US, but we do have a core interest in keeping the European continent uh, stable and secure. As we as we pivot, and so we do need Europeans at least to be able to secure their their neighborhood in their own um, continent. You know, if you remember uh, the pivot to Asia announced by by Obama and Hillary Clinton, uh, never really came to fruition because he was brought back to Europe by uh, the aggression on Ukraine in 2014, and that's still high on the agenda, unfortunately today, and brought back to the Middle East uh, by the, the war in Syria and uh, the rise of ISIS. 
So that's something, of course, that the administration would want to uh, uh, avoid and empower Europeans to secure Europe. And there's another school of thought, which is uh, we've always done everything with Europeans. The transatlantic relationship is core to uh, the U.S. Uh, global posture. And so we need also Europeans with us in the Indo-Pacific because we need to make them stakeholders of the, the security order and architecture there. And of course, you know, the truth is we're going to end up with something that might be a compromise between the two. France has two million citizens in the Indo-Pacific. So, you know, it's not beyond the burden sharing and division of labor. Each of these European countries will have its own uh, interest to defend in the region. But I would say uh, beyond that, th- there's the security and defense dimension of this. But what's one thing that's been interesting in how the administration is handling this, and it's quite different from the Trump administration here, is that, of course, there's a global competition with China that includes the trade dimension, that includes technology. And here, there's been very strong engagement with the EU. And I think that's a little bit of a difference that we see between the Obama administration, the Biden administration, is that in the meantime, the EU, and here I mean Brussels, the commission, the regulatory agenda coming out of Brussels is much higher on, on the agenda, where only because, you know, it's developed uh, GDPR and the Digital Service Act, Digital Markets Act. The EU has really tried to rise as a global uh, standards and norm setter on the uh, international stage and, and leverage the power of its internal market because the EU is not a major military actor, but it is a major, it's it's the first integrated single market in the world. Uh, and, and here Brussels has uh, competence when it comes to trade or, or technology regulation. So here, you know, the creation of the Tech and Trade Council, uh, where we're talking about, you know, ethics of AI, microchip, supply chain strategy, investment screening. And on this, it's really interesting because in a way, it's all about China without even needing to talk about China because mm-hmm. it's all about how we create a common transatlantic digital space and a common understanding of, of technology to push back against digital authoritarianism uh, from China and, of course, also from, from Russia. So I think here the transatlantic bond is, is really key. And, and one last point, you know, I, I completely agree with Tanvi that especially when the administration came into office, you know, we had transatlantic friction with the, the CAI, the EU-China investment agreement, uh, and Germany, to a certain extent, France and others were seen as ambiguous in their position towards China. It is interesting, though, to see that there's been a shift this year, I think. Part of it is the transatlantic relationship. A large part of it is Xi Jinping's own behavior, assertiveness, the lies over COVID. All of this is starting to have an, an effect. And I'll give you just a few examples. Lithuania leaving the 17 plus one to make it the 16 plus one and really rising as a key a human rights voice on Taiwan and issues like this, a new government in the Czech Republic that's coming into office. I think that's going to really break with the the previous one. Uh, The new government in Germany with especially the Green Foreign Minister Baerbock, who has been a strong voice on uh, on human rights uh, in China. France, after AUKUS, doubled down on its relationship with India and Japan. And so, you know, clearly sent a message like we're in the Mm Indo-Pacific, we're not going anywhere. And the European Parliament also clearly playing an important role on, on Taiwan, especially. So things are moving in Europe in this direction. And I think here again, we have the opportunity to, to work together. But it does go back to my previous point that I think the, the direct security concerns of Europeans for the stability and security of Europe are in the neighborhood. And this is where both sides, the US and Europe, have a, uh, a common interest in getting Europeans m- more involved, more uh, responsible. On Ben's point, I think I did want to say that 
because of we think about kind of Indo-Pacific that it's geographically there, I was going to kind of point out that because of the nature of what we are seeing in terms of US-China competition, which is it's not just geopolitical, it's not just happening in the region. It does involve technological competition. It does involve, uh, you know, economic dimensions. Uh, and not just because we wanted to, but because China is using these tools to whether it's be assertive or to coerce country, or frankly, I mean, it's also using it, you know, in benign ways that's helping countries. But regardless, if, if there's competition in infrastructure, that's and so you need this can't just be. In fact, I think it will be ineffective if it is. Um, the U.S. going in with only the Quad countries or only Indo-Pacific allies and partners. And I think you need European, like-minded European countries who won't necessarily do everything at the same level. And you don't have to, everybody doesn't have to do everything everywhere. Um, but, you know, you can have different tiers of, you know, if the U Europeans don't want to push China in certain domains, that's okay. That is something, you know, maybe the Quad countries are more comfortable but, you know, if you look at the the, the uh, comparison, you do see what you've seen the Biden administration be able to work much more effectively with uh, Europe on talking about human rights and values, on sanctions on that, which, you know, the Quad countries don't want to necessarily do, even though they might agree. They just have a different view of how kind of the human rights and values dimensions and sanctions play in Asia. And so I think, you know, this is about kind of finding uh, different areas where countries can cooperate. But I, I think the idea should be to pull in the same direction if possible and at least not work at cross purposes. And, you know, you see this in a domain like economic coercion. How do you actually deal with something like that? And it doesn't work if, you know, say the Indo-Pacific countries say, you know, we will back um, or, or say Australia is coerced and, uh, and other, you know, the European countries go and take that market or even American companies do. You, you know, there has that solidarity can't just be Indo-Pacific solidarity. Uh, it has to be broader. And you can't, I mean, I don't think you can have a, um, issues like technology where, you know, Europe is such a dominant kind of player. Uh, I'm not sure you can have, even if not as the EU, uh, you know, countries like Netherlands key to the uh, semiconductor space, you just can't have an effective competing with China or, you know, even an Indo-Pacific strategy uh, without having uh, kind of Europe involved. So I do think it's about creating, you know, I shouldn't say safe spaces, but uh, more like, you know, comfort zones where mm -hmm. and this is why I like the coalition approach that the Biden administration uh, is taking um, that you know at least in the quad case it's doubling down on what Trump did. But this idea that if European countries want to work at a certain level, you can join this coalition. Otherwise, you know the EU U.S. Trade and Technology Council works on a certain set of technology issues. The quad works on a certain um, set according to what works. And then you the, the the challenge will be to kind of knit this all together, um, stitch it all together, and kind of pull in the same direction. I have one last question, which is that. Um, it, you know, you both mentioned human rights and democracy and, and values. Biden stressed this a lot as a candidate and coming into office in actual foreign policy. And as we head into the next year of, of Biden, you know, by the time this goes up, there will have been a summit of democracies. Some attendees have a checkered record, perhaps including the United States. Over the past year, do you think that he has sort of walked the talk on that? And moving forward, would you like to see more emphasis on human rights and values? Or should we just drop the pretense and make this about technology, security, geopolitics? On the human rights piece, look, I think 
on democracy, it's a bit like on the question of allies. The Biden team really wanted to stress its difference with the Trump administration. It's you know there's a domestic constituency to this uh, beyond the, the question of the international leadership of uh, the United States. And it seems to me that they've struggled a little bit to put some substance and content into this idea of summit for democracy. That was one of the big uh, campaign promise of uh, of the Biden administration. Where only because you know they put a lot of the content that they could put in either for the TTC, for the Quad, for the other different frameworks that they've adopted over the last years. So you know we'll we'll see what comes out of it. I think sometimes I'm talking about uh, democracy to your point, Emily. It's good to be a little bit humble about the challenges that we face in our own democracies both the United States, but of course, uh, Europeans. But, uh, you know, my sense is it's not about dropping the pretense. I think if we do work together on issues of uh, keeping an open internet, defending data privacy and countering hate speech online, it is about defending our values in democracy. It is about, uh, you know, pushing back into sort of authoritarian models that we're seeing rise. So uh, I think it's important to do that work, but I'm generally, you know, uh, skeptical of getting too much entangled to the more sort of moralistic statements if they're not followed by really concrete action. Because once again, it's like America is back. It creates huge expectations. And if you can't deliver, I think it it, it hurts your, your message. I think, you know, I mean, the way I think about it is we have an example of how it does matter uh, what the nature of a country is in the form of a South Africa that was an open society that let us all know uh, it was transparent about kind of, you know, this strain it found. Had you seen a China that had done the same, would we be in the same situation? And so openness matters. Transparency matters. These values that are within, it's not just about elections, but those are important too. And we could do some work here on that. But I believe at least that the world would be safer and more stable if we did have more democracies. But I'm also realistic as a historian that in the kind of phase we're in, we are going to see this administration uh, prioritize strategic objectives, uh, even as it, as it talks about values, that it will, when it comes to, I can't recall, and I might be wrong, um, I can't recall an instance thus far in the last um, number of months of this administration when there has been a strategic and a values imperative in competition, and they've chosen the values imperative. Even in, in the Middle East, where you know you, you don't see, it's apparently not, or at least in theory, is not supposed to be the focus area anymore. So I do think we have to be realistic about what is possible. I also think you know there are both advantages and disadvantages to this authoritarian versus uh, democracy framing. I think this is good for us to think about it, maybe, that what we, what, why this is, you know, the fact that a country is not a democracy might make it more assertive, might make it harder to read, etc. But I do, like, for example, in the Indo-Pacific, it's not a very effective framing. To me, the things, I think it is important, though, as Ben said, the parts about defending democracies, about helping countries build democratic resilience, or the resilience of their systems so that they can, whether they are democracies or not, because you don't want to exclude countries that could become democracies, uh, where there are civil societies who want it to be, but essentially say, look, we, we do want to help you strengthen your societies, build the resilience of your infrastructure. So if you don't want to do it on the democracy side, help build resilience, health resist, uh, resilience, climate resilience, technology resilience, 
And that way, even countries that are not democracy, you start to have that conversation uh, about what are, what kind of world can we want to live in, what kind of countries they can be. And I think to me, if there was one thing the Biden administration could do uh, is to show, you know, to show that democracies can deliver, which they say is one of their messages, to show the contrast is to get all the large democracies together that are relevant in this space and ensure as many people around the world are vaccinated as possible. That will show democracies can deliver. It will also show that democracies have produced a higher quality vaccine that everybody wants and has made the data transparent on it. So to me, I would have rather, instead of summit for democracy, you do a summit for vaccines mm-hmm. that whoever wants to come participate, but at least have the major democracies make sure that you vaccinate every person in the world. And that's far better for any competition uh, than, you know, to be very honest, a, a summit uh, that doesn't exclude uh, a lot of people and then does include some countries that you know, you're, you're scratching your head about. On that note, Ben, Tanvi, I'm going to thank you both so much for taking the time. I'm, I'm sure we'll continue the conversation in Biden's year two of foreign policy. Coming up. Uh, But then there are other ways where I think that, unfortunately, uh, it hasn't been very progressive. And I'm thinking about, for example, how we've handled asylum claims in the United States and the fact that Title 42 is still in place. Congressman Joaquin Castro on whether Biden's foreign policy is really as progressive as he claims. Subscribing to The New Statesman helps us keep making podcasts like this one. You can get... 12 weeks for just one pound a week. You'll get access to all our reporting and analysis on global affairs, as well as in-depth coverage of U.S. politics in the magazine and online at newstatesman.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm joined now by Congressman Joaquin Castro. He is on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and is widely considered to be one of the rising stars of the Democratic Party. Congressman, thank you so much for being with me today. No, thank you for having me. So we spoke this year about the potential that this moment had for progressive foreign policy. A year has gone by, uh, you know, we have a Democratic president, a Democratic House, a nominally Democratic Senate. Do you think that that potential for progressive foreign policy is being fulfilled? In many ways, I think so. In many ways, I think the Biden administration has moved us in that direction. Uh, if you look at the administration's decision to end the war in Afghanistan, for example, uh, and follow through with that, uh, to re-engage on combating climate change, for example. Uh, but then there are other ways where I think that, unfortunately, uh, it hasn't been very progressive. And I'm thinking about, for example, how we've handled asylum claims in the United States and the fact that Title 42 is still in place and people are being summarily expelled. These very desperate folks who are seeking asylum are being summarily expelled from the United States without any kind of consideration of their claim. And then also the Remain in Mexico program, which is endangering people right across the border who are also, again, people that are seeking asylum. Uh, so I, I do think that there has been a lot of progress in some areas. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, there's been regression in others. One of the things that that you and other members of Congress said was maybe not a good thing, but something of a silver lining about the Trump era is that members of Congress were reminded that they had an active role to play in shaping foreign policy um, and in having oversight over the executive branch, right? Because Trump was, because his foreign policy was so perhaps not in line with what Congress might have wanted. Do you think that we have seen more oversight from Congress now that Biden is in the White House or, or that, that that level of desire for oversight has continued? Yeah, I think we absolutely have. And part of that is seeing the repeal of some of the old AUMFs, for example, and mm -hmm. continuing to work on full repeals. And also, I think credit goes to Congress, but credit also goes to the Biden administration, because in order to conduct a lot of your oversight effectively as a legis legislative body, you need, to some extent, the cooperation of the administration. Mm -hmm. What we saw during the Trump years was we would send out uh, requests for uh, members of the, the Trump administration to show up before committees, and either they just didn't want to show up or they would delay and delay and delay. Uh, same thing with uh, requests to appear before the Intelligence Committee, for example, and things like that. So yes, this Congress has been more active, but that's partly been enabled by an administration that's also been much more cooperative. Are there foreign policy events or narratives or developments from the past year that you think maybe should have gotten more attention? Well, one of them, for example, is uh, many of us have been talking for the last few years, the last several years, about uh, climate refugees, because we've mm -hmm. talked a lot about climate change, 
but we all haven't often spoken about how people's lives are impacted, particularly people that are already in vulnerable parts of the world. And so I feel like during this last year, uh, 2021, the idea of climate refugees and that being a real category of refugee around the world and in the United States is gaining more traction. It's obviously not there yet, but I feel like uh, it's gotten a lot more traction than it had just a few years ago. Do you think that there is a sense in some corners of the foreign policy or national security establishment that that doesn't count as a foreign policy issue, right? That, it, that you can think of it as a as a migration issue or as a climate issue, but that it, that it somehow doesn't reach the level of being foreign policy? Oh, there's no doubt that there's still folks that hold on to that idea. Uh, and that's been part of our challenge is that we've kind of separated it out as a border security issue, for example, in the United States or as a, a domestic policy issue, because now, well, what do you do with these people that have shown up at your border? Uh, but the, the truth is, many folks, they're fleeing either violent situations like drug gangs in Central America, but also in Central America, we've seen some devastating natural disasters, including climate events that have made people flee their homes. And it's not just affecting people coming to the United States, it's affecting nations around the world. And so I see the, I guess, the foreign policy establishment, so to speak, slowly and slowly accepting this this idea more and more. And, you know, it's just I think that for a long time, our mindset has been stuck in what I would consider the 1950s or 1960s, where our idea of a refugee is somebody who's fleeing a communist dictator or some very oppressive communist leader. And the truth is that the threats to people in their homelands can come, of course, from repressive leaders, but they can also come from the devastating effects of climate change and that we should be willing uh, to treat people the same, regardless of why they're fleeing. Relatedly, what did you make of the administration's efforts this year on climate change? On, I mean, on the one hand, there was, you know, he rejoined the, the Paris Agreement. Secretary Kerry is a person on the National Security Council solely de- dedicated to climate crisis. We've never had that before. We now have an administration that at least says that climate change is a real issue, that it needs to be taken seriously. On the other hand, you have you know, young people and activists saying this isn't nearly enough. Well, I mean, it's it's a great turn from the previous administration, from the Trump administration that pulled us out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, but that's also a pretty low bar, right? I mean, Trump was going in completely the opposite direction. So uh, I think that the Biden administration has tried to do everything they can to uh, staunch the damage that was done and start moving us in the right direction. But the truth is the final answer to your question, I think, won't be known for a few or several years uh, whether this administration was truly transformative in how we deal with issues of the climate. And then finally, um, as we head into 2022 and the second year of the Biden administration, what will your priorities be um, in your capacity on the Foreign Affairs Committee? And, and what do you think the administration's priority should be with respect to foreign affairs and foreign policy? Oh, I mean, they're, they're vast again for 2022. You know, we, we didn't mention the pandemic, of course, in 2021. You had hundreds of thousands more Americans, millions of more people around the world who died from the pandemic. I think one thing the Biden administration was successful at, um, putting aside for a second its success domestically, was in getting the United States to engage the nations of the world and to be helpful in providing vaccines around the world. So that's been a good thing. Uh, now with these, this new variant, we don't know exactly what the pandemic in 2022 are going to look like, 
But I hope that the Biden administration will continue to have the United States step up and be a true leader in providing vaccines to the people of the world. As you know, there's some nations where not even 1% or 2% of their population has been vaccinated yet. So the pandemic, of course, is still a big thing. Um, But also things like the JCPOA, whether we're actually going to go finally uh, fully negotiate with Iran in earnest and get them on track uh, so that we can get back into an agreement uh, where we make sure that we don't have a a nuclear Iran, uh, that's going to be a big issue in 2022. Uh, because I would I would put it this way, if it doesn't happen in 2022, I'm very skeptical that it's going to happen at all during the Biden administration, at least the first four years. Right. I, I hope there's a second four years. So that's a huge one for 2022. Also, uh, on the remaining AUMF that's still out there. And this is a perfect opportunity for the United States to after Afghanistan is done to reevaluate the AUMFs and finally decide how we want to, how we want our government to go forward when it comes to issues of war and declarations of war and use of force. Uh, so those will be two big ones or a few big ones, you know, and of course the elections are going to hover over all of it uh, as they do in every uh, election. Yes. Um, and we've got a slim majority in the United States Senate there just with the tiebreak of the vice president. But, you know, I do think that there will be more room in 2022, perhaps even than there was in 2021 to focus on foreign policy because a lot of the big domestic issues and items will have been dealt with, hopefully, as hopefully Build Back Better gets passed. Uh, and so now I think we can take on some of these big foreign policy issues uh, even more strongly. Well, we will be following those in 2022. Congressman, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. You've been listening to Battle for the Soul of America, a three-part series from the New Statesman's World Review. Join us next time where we discuss Biden's record on immigration and how far he has moved away from his predecessor. Remember to like, subscribe, and tell a friend. I've been Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C., and this podcast was produced by Mae Robson. Until next time. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken, so can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.